Again, why does David have five rocks? Well, again, in my view, it's because that's how many he picks up. It's how many fit in his hand. I, and, now, the reason I say this is, the, the main reason I say this is, there is nothing in 1 Samuel 17 that tells me I should read five rocks like I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress. Like there's no, it's just, it's a story. There's no indication in that story that things in that story stand for another thing, right? Like, so for instance, if you're reading the parable of um, the sower, Jesus comes with uh, a figural sort of interpretation where he says, now, this is what this, the first seed is, this is what the second seed is, this or the soils, right? There is nothing in 1 Samuel 17 that says to me, this stuff is figural, like five stands for something other, some other five thing, okay? So there's that, but I don't think it's, but at the same time, I don't think it's just a uh, color commentary. Like it's just there for like local color. It gives the story like a little more detail. It does give the story detail. It gives it detail that emphasizes the unexpected thing that happens that day. Besides the fact that you have a kid who beats a giant. But it's not just, wow, five rocks, that's not much. The real key is if you read verses 4 through 7. This is, in my view, this is the answer to why five rocks. I should have had this ready to go. So, 1 Samuel 17, of course. (laughs) And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. It's a comparison of weapons. Five rocks, I think, is listed because Goliath's armor and weapons are listed. Like it's, the two, like it's the two similar things in the story. Right? But it's, it's, it's kind of easy to overlook the five things. And for years, for me, it just was simply, well, it's how many you could pick up, right? Just to try to dismantle, not dis- yeah, sort of dismantle, like seeing it as like a figural thing. But then I was reading it again, shock, and I thought, oh no, it's even easier than that, actually. It's the, just in the same chapter is another list of what one guy's armed with, right? So David goes out with a sling and five rocks, which is even if you didn't know anything about what Goliath is carrying, you'd be like, hmm, hope that kid's good with that sling or can run. But then when you see, there's not a lot of space to hit Goliath even if you're good with a sling. And I don't even think it's just to narrow down the target. It is just the, 
it, it is like the indescribable difference between these two people in terms of who should win this fight. Right? It's not enough that Goliath is a giant. It's not enough that everybody's afraid of him. He also is armed to the teeth with things that like you couldn't even pick. Like David, you know, like David wouldn't even be able to, he, David couldn't even wear sort of Saul's armor, right? <laughs> and so I look at that and think, you know what that's doing? Is that is even further emphasizing there is only one person to whom you can attribute David's victory. And it's ultimately not David. As good as David, and that doesn't take away. So sometimes we'll hear that and be like, well, you know, David was. Like, I get it. David was fill in the blank. And we'll, take, we'll talk about that in a second. Now, don't forget, though, as a reader, this is, really, this is really, I think, key. And this is important for teaching. Like, a really, I mean, when was the last time? Like, you know how it is when you come across these stories that, you're like, everybody knows this story. What's there left to say? Don't forget that as a reader of 1 Samuel 17, you know more than virtually everybody on the ground at the time. You have this view that nobody, like you have this privilege. You have a privilege that Saul didn't have. You have a privilege that, you have a privilege that only, let's see, on the field that day, what? Five guys had. And even there, even how much, like, you know, everybody's, well, you know, David's brothers, was there, David's brothers knew, maybe five people. David's brothers knew he was anointed. Okay, so? They don't treat him like anything differently, right? Or like, well, you know, but that's sometimes what we'll say. Well, David's already anointed. Like, okay, sure. Still a kid with a sling, right? And Goliath is still Goliath. And here's the other thing. David doesn't come strutting in there like, you know what happened, Samuel. He, David doesn't come in there acting like he's anointed. We don't know, and we don't know, we don't have access to David's mind about like what that made him, how that made him think, like what David's thinking, right? Except you do get to hear what David's thinking, but it's not based on his like, oh, I'm anointed, I could pull off anything. He comes in there that day. He doesn't treat Saul like Saul's not the king, and he is, right? He doesn't. So we have to be careful. Yeah, as a reader, you know, as a reader, you have like this almost sovereign knowledge of this story. And I think it's important to remember that because if we forget that, we will tell this David and Goliath story or any other story, especially the well-known ones, as though, like, well, here's, of course this happens. And then we'll be sort of searching and trying to pull at the threads to find some sort of application to a story that everybody knows so well. You're like, what is there left to say about this? When there's infinite things to say about this, even if you're just repeating over and over and over again, some sort of version of, this is not what you would expect. And it's not simply because David's not relying uh, on the armor of men. And it's not simply because David realized, you know, that our battle is not with flesh and blood or that he went out in the full armor of God. I'm not against any of those ideas. But, you know, leading up to this story, of course, we even know that one time David is commended 
as being mighty in battle. But there's no explanation of that because there's no recording of battles that David was in. Right? So we can't, well, he's already a seasoned soldier. Well, but see, he isn't. Even though one chapter earlier, chapter 16, that's where David is anointed, there's one line about David being, and I'm not doubting it, but you know the big clue that David is not like special ops is he's not with the army on a day when the whole army is there. Or in fact, many days, 40 to be exact. (laughs) So we want to be careful. We want to be careful that we don't sort of like, we don't come up with so many rational ways that makes this story understandable. Because that's sort of what we can, that's what we might do to it. I'm not saying that's what you've done to it or that's what you do to it. But we don't want to come to 1 Samuel 17 and already have so many explanations that would, on a, in a, on a natural way, explain how David could do this. But by the time you do it, it's like, well, of course. Of course. Of course he did. As though, like, any other outcome was ever even possible. You know, but again, some giant, just one giant, not even a whole army. One giant comes storming here. I don't think we're going to, how old are you? 15. Okay, no offense, but that's a great age to be when I'm talking about David. What was your name again? Ben, I'm sorry to embarrass you. You'll forget it, though, in time. It, now, you would never want this to happen. Right? So this is to complete the story. If Ben started saying, I'll get him, probably somebody in here, starting with his dad, would be like, no, you're not. And if Ben said, again, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm already doing it. And I'm making it worse by pointing it out, I know. And so if Ben's like, no, I can do it. Nobody in here would be convinced for a half of a second. No offense. But we wouldn't be rushing out there either because we won't even go out. At least, Ben, you're volunteering to go. And we're like, I'm not going. Because you know what? That day, everybody was terrified. Starting with the king. But what does David do, though? What is the thing that does sort of it's sort of David, David does let us in on something. He doesn't let us in. Now, he does tell Saul, you know, I did kill lions and tigers and bears. Okay, no, I know. It's, it's just lions and bears, I know. But I, I never can resist. I need to run learn how to resist that. And you're like, wow, that's awesome. I'm like, okay. I'm not taken away from that either. But David doesn't beat Goliath because he can kill a bear, and a lion, or at least rescue a sheep, like be delivered. Because he says, the Lord delivered me from the lion and the bear. He doesn't come up, yeah, by the way, Saul, you know, like I really threw down on a bear and a lion. Doesn't do that at all. He says, the Lord delivered me. And then what's the other thing? What's the other thing that David says? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, right, that he would come against the armies of the living God? That's it. That's, all, that's really what you need to know about David that day, right? But that doesn't make David superhuman. He's still a kid with a sling. And he goes out and he beats, he goes out and he beats that giant. Now, go back to verse 16. 
sorry, chapter 16. This is still the David and Goliath story. Look how David, this just gives you an, this gives you an idea of how people understood David at the time. So Samuel is going out, like the, Saul has been rejected. And so Samuel's out on this trek again, right? And he's looking, right? God is directing him, and he sees Eliab, and he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, a lot of people, a lot of us know that verse, and that's a great verse to know. And I'm a big fan of knowing verses, even when you don't remember where that verse comes from. I'm a total fan of that. But once we remember where this verse comes from, see, there, now there is, a, there is a line that is setting up the David and Goliath story. Because by all accounts, you shouldn't expect this guy to be the king or the guy who will kill the giant. You know who you would expect to be king? Tallest guy in Israel at the time that we know of. That's who? You know how you'd pick for to be a king? We need to get the, get the, get the tall guy. Right? Seriously, get the tall guy. But this is, see, this is what's happening. And I think sometimes, though, with these really well-known stories, these really well-known stories, we can sort of lose that thread. And it sort of becomes, it sort of becomes like explanations for how this can happen in like, you know, in a way that people can kind of believe. But what we're seeing along the way is not just a collection of ridiculous stories. And you don't need me to tell you this. You guys know this better than I do, but trust me, when you say things like this is an impossible story, there's a good chance somebody's going to misunderstand what you mean by that. It's just a little bit of a thing, because I have said this on more than one occasion, like this is impossible that David does this. And there, were, there have been over the, over the years people who hear me saying this didn't happen. That's not what I mean. So we just always want to be careful, right? But if you, if you do think about it, I mean, on that level, if you'd have been standing there today, just ask yourself this question. You see this kid go out, right? And like the fact that he wouldn't wear the armor is not because David's like, I don't need any armor. Number one, he's never worn armor. Number two, it doesn't fit him. Right? <laughs> the last thing you probably want to do is go out like falling over. I don't know. But all that aside, all that aside, is if I think any of us, if we'd been standing, like, think about, you know, this is a small valley. It's not like this huge space. It is, I'm bad at distances. It's not a lot bigger than, say, from the road to the tree line back there. It is shockingly, it's probably bigger than, I don't know. I've stood there and, like, I'll never forget this, but obviously I have. It's not big. It is a very compact space given you got, especially, you know how how small a space gets when you get a lot of people in it, right? And the Philistines are up a hill. And there's this little 
they say it's the same creek. It, maybe it is. I don't know. Who cares? And the Israelites, imagine being there that many days, just, just psychologically for a minute, this guy coming out and daring you to step up every single day. And then one day when a, so when, when, then one day this kid comes out, none of us are going to be like, finally. Finally, a kid and like whatever he's wearing with a sling. I hear he's pretty good with lions and bears. May as well pack up and go home. And so when Saul says, go and the Lord be with you, I don't think necessarily that that's Saul like, amen, brother. I mean, I don't know what Saul's thinking. I just know this. Saul has not shown himself to be particularly faithful and trusting God up to that point. So I don't necessarily hear that sort of send-off prayer as like Saul's like last-ditch effort at being sort of holy and good. I don't know. You sort of have to match it with him. But whatever the case, here's the last big takeaway to take here. Takeaway that, that seems redundant. As the king goes, so the people go. Right? Saul's no different than the army, right? Saul is terrified. The army is terrified. What happens when David defeats Goliath? Uh, they're like supercharged. They have to chase after the Israelites to say, hey, enough, is, enough, enough, enough. You've killed them dead. It's time to go back. And you see this, right? But as the king goes, so the people go. But it's the most, it's the least expected king that there could ever be. It's not a king that any of those men would have just followed out of the gate. Nothing about him would have commended, like this is the, like the army of Israel. There's nothing about David that would, or even Israel as a nation. There is nothing about this kid that would have commended him to them as he's the guy to follow. In fact, they would have probably almost certainly rejected such an idea, just like Samuel himself had to be guided by God, not to what man sees. Now there's, and you've already put it together, Right? There are multiple sort of patterns here that are going to be repeated, ultimately repeated in the future. Right? With one who comes, who, has, who on the surface would seem to have nothing about him that would commend him to you as a king. That would ever be worth following, especially when he starts talking about what that means. And then that's when we get to the, like, the biggest knot, of course, in the entire Bible. Right, and that's, that's, that's where we're going to go now because if there is ever, ever, ever a time where it is not, of course, it is the cross of Christ. <laughs> that's, not how things, that's not how things happen. Right? Let's just take a look. I think that's next. Let's just start here at this point, though. Sometimes we read the Beatitudes, and we read it as like, if you do these things, you'll get a blessing. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking away any idea, any sort of that. I'm not, taking, I'm, not, not, I'm not trying to say that's not true. But it's a description of what blessing looks like. It's not really, if you're meek, then you're going to get a blessing. It says, blessed are. 
Not if you're meek and sort of amp up your meekness and the more meeker you can get, then you're going to get a reward of blessing at the end. I'm not taking away rewards. I'm just saying, if we just read it the way it says, it lists, for the most part, a whole bunch of stuff that is not, of course this is what blessing looks like. Of course this is what flourishing looks like. Really? Now, not, again, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying, when was the last time you heard something about living a good life, having your best life, flourishing, and it was described like this, poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteous, righteousness, right? Hunger and thirst for it, who are longing for it, longing for it. We think of, well, no, we, we think of achievement as like that's, that's the sign, achieving, getting, that's the sign of blessing. Right? Like that's where we're really going to cash things in. But according to Jesus, it is, the, it is, it is hungering for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. You know these things. The pure in heart, the peacemakers. Now this one. We turn this into, again, I'm not saying you do this. The guy beside you does. You don't, but the, almost certainly the guy beside you has done this, right? But you're, you're, you're good. Um, we talk about persecution in such a light, lighthearted way as though like, yeah, this is what happens, man. Is it? Can you think of anything in human history where people looked at people who were persecuted and be like, they're the winners right there? Ever. You know, and uh, like an analogy to that would be like, when was the last time you heard about a kingdom that was great because it was built with, not built by, but filled with servants? Not a lot of kings, not a lot of kingdoms in history are like, you know who's great? I mean, the pharaohs were, and they were great. But, you know, the people who built the temple, built the pyramids, they were the really great ones. It just doesn't work. Right? And this is, this is what we get right, right. So even the beginning, when we talk about Christian flourishing, we have to always come back to this is what it looks like. But it's only by faith that we can even grasp this is what it is. But see, again, it's this, it's this, now, it's this reversal. Now, I'm not doing like a big technical biblical theology. This is just biblical theological reading. It's not like a Bible, biblical theology of reversals or anything like that, right? It's just seeing this sort of recurring thing, this recurring theme that turns out, in my mind, to be a really important theme from beginning to end at every level. And here in Jesus' description of what blessing looks like, this is what it looks like to be blessed by God. This is just another one, and we're going to, this, this is just a small one, right? But at every level, Jesus shows us and teaches us. that it, well, maybe not every, there's probably some we could point out, right? It's almost always, it seems like it's almost always true that what our natural inclination would be 
where Jesus would be like, hang on for a second. And not, not every single thing that exists, right? We'll just, let's just limit ourselves to things he points out. But you know this one. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, cheek turn the other one. Now, as, 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 as people have said, I can't remember who said this exactly, Jesus is not teaching here, be a doormat for me and let everybody walk all over you and don't ever speak up, right? This is not what it is. It's not like, this is not sort of a cry for total passivity. But it is, it is doing what? It is pushing down or pushing back against our tendency to do what? Yeah, to lash back out and return evil with evil for some justified reason like they had it coming because they hit me first. Or who knows what they would have done to the next person if I'd let them off the hook. This has to stop. Now, I'm not saying, again, again, this doesn't mean there's never a time to take a stand. It's never never time to open your mouth. doesn't mean that. It's just sort of speaking against our sort of natural tendency to take retribution and revenge and justice into our own hands at all times. Right? Again, this, this one's, let's move on though. Here's the big one of all. The reversal of what a king and a kingdom is like. And I'll just, I mean, there's a, there's a hundred places I could go for this. But I'll just go here where Jesus is talking about, remember what's just happened. Nope, sorry. Pretend I never said that. Think about what's getting ready to happen, which is also on the screen. This is the first of three times in Mark, not just in Mark, but it's easy to remember the Mark ones, right? Because it's like Mark 8.31, 9.31, and then 10.33. You can just easily like, just go to the like 8, 9, just remember verse 30, 8, 9, 10, and you're in discipleship each time. And Jesus tells them what he's going to do. Now, the whole book of Mark, I want to make sure I don't get down a rabbit trail on this one. The whole book of Mark, if Mark had a subtitle, I think it would be, who is this? Because this is the thing nobody can figure out. He astonishes everybody. At first, he astonishes people because he's doing things like, we've never seen anything like this. Where does he get this power and authority? And then, when he starts to narrow, when his audience sort of gets kind of, sort of funneled out a little bit, and it's like his closest followers and his worst enemies. This is when he starts to do things that people are, they just can't get their minds around it, including his closest followers. So Jesus says here, you've already read it, he's telling what's going to happen, right? Rejected, suffer, be killed, three days rise again. Now we read that and are like, what is their problem? He tells them, you know, in Mark, in Mark, he mentions the resurrection no less than four times explicitly. Three times, once in chapter eight, twice in chapter nine, because he tells, he tells the disciples coming down off the mountain of transfiguration, don't say anything until after the resurrection. And they're like, they're afraid to ask him because they don't know what this resurrection means. And then he tells them again in 10, and we look at them and be like, he tells them he's going to rise from the dead. What are they all worked up about? Well, there's a natural explanation of that and be like, well, okay. 
No matter how much you believe in the resurrection, tell me how many you've seen. But that's not it. There's probably a little bit of that. Now, we like, don't they know in a resurrection? I mean, you know, when, 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 when Jesus goes to Lazarus' house, of course they believe in a resurrection, right? It's not that. It's just you, he, you could have saved him if you'd been here. Here's the thing that none of the disciples are ready for. A resurrection where one man dies and is resurrected, and then things continue on. There is a big resurrection somehow at the end. That's it. There is no idea, no idea of a, the king, the Messiah, being put to death, dying, redundant, rising, and then the earth continuing on. Like there is a, res- it's a resurrection of everybody, of the people, God's people. So they don't have, they don't understand, they, they have no concept. So the, the easy way to say this to people is, you know, the New Testament really is new. It's not just sort of the Old Testament with the veil pulled back. You're like, it was all there all the time, like in detail. It, the New Covenant is called new for a reason. And I'm not denigrating the old. But again, we have to also put ourselves in the mind, in the, in the place of the, not the mind, but the place of the disciples. What are they hearing over and over? I'm going to die, and I'm going to be rejected. And each time he tells the story, 8, 9, and 10, he adds some other detail to it. And each time they misunderstand. You know why? Because we would have too. Now, I was actually right before. Do you know what happens right before this? Peter gets it exactly right, as right as he could. Because Jesus says, who do people say? You know, they go through the whole thing. Who do people say I am? And he says, well, here's the important question. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Peter's not wrong. We sometimes like bend over. Because of what Peter does next, we emphasize too much that Peter, well, you know, he got the name part right, the title. It's not a name. He got the title. It's a, Peter's, this is, he confesses. He believes. We don't want to take away everything, like, because, you know, Peter wasn't perfect afterwards, so clearly he didn't believe. Because clearly, if you believe, you're always perfect all the time in everything you do and say, obviously. Right? He's just confessed. And then Jesus, now here's the thing. What does Jesus do? Everybody's expecting a Messiah. They really are. Now, they're expecting like lots of different versions. I'm not going to try to unpack it. There's all kinds of ideas swirling at the time. Uh, there's even some sort of obscure ideas sort of about maybe two, one who suffers and one who, I'm not saying that was widespread, but there's a lot of expectation. At the top of the list of no one is the Messiah is going to come and be killed. No one. First thing the Messiah is going to do, he's going to clean house. Who's he going to start with? I mean, the Pharisees, I mean, you know, the religious authorities corrupt, yeah. But who's he going to start with? The Romans. They are out. Jesus is handed over to the Gentiles and killed. 
This is because as you, as you just you know you just read the accounts in eight, nine, and ten. Okay. If it's some, if you can somehow come up with a story worse than the Messiah dying, there is nothing that screams total, absolute defeat and the rejection of the, of the rejection of the fulfillment of God's promise than the Messiah being killed by Gentiles. It literally cannot get worse than that. Because that screams God has not still not fulfilled his promise. And this is, so what, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. And he, every time he tells them, they misunderstand. Or they go a different direction, right? Now, so when Peter, when Jesus, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? The only thing I'll say about Peter at this point is, why did he stop at rebuking Jesus? Why didn't he, like, physically restrain him? I would have tackled him. If we think we would have heard Jesus say this and we would say, amen, let's get you down there today. Let's not even spend the night tonight. I mean, we got several days. Let's just nonstop, no sleep. Let's get you to Jerusalem. Let's get you to wherever, this, wherever you're going, right? Maybe you can assume it's later we'll find out, right? You can assume, chief priest, right? Let's get you down there and get you killed as soon as possible. That's the other alternative, right? And, or even if it wasn't like that gung-ho to say, yeah, that's good. That sounds good. That sounds really, really good. Because, because as we all know, if you want to start a movement with a person at the, at the head of that who's going to make it work, it's the person who everybody, like who basically defines that movement, the first thing you want to do is get rid of that person as soon as possible for that movement to succeed. Just ask any campaign that's ever succeeded. You get rid of the candidate, and then the, can, and then, and then, and then the campaign absolutely succeeds in all of its goals. See, it, see, this is the thing. This never happens. Except what? It never happens in the way we would plan it. For this, the only way this happens, and the way this happens is, it points to one thing and one thing only, and that is God's relentless, God's relentless fulfillment of His own promise, even the fulfillment of His promise of justice, without which there is no salvation. On the day you eat it, you will die. That is still going to be exacted right? And then the life, the life that was projected is going to be had, right? And so, but this is how it's all taking place. And, you know, I'm not quite done yet, but there is, there is, no, there is nothing really more, I think nothing sort of more shows like the, the extent of this sort of idea of reversal than, in fact, the kingdom and the cross, because think about it, it's a kingdom, who's great? The servants. Even, you know, the Son of Man did not come what? To be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus does that, this is a fulfillment. I mean, it fits this sort of reversal idea. But this is a fulfillment that nobody's looking for. Right? So, Son of Man, Jesus' favorite, one of his, his favorite title for himself. Now, as, as you know, right, this comes, this is sufficiently vague, though. Because Son of Man can mean, like, Ezekiel. God calls Ezekiel Son of Man all the time. Hey, Son of Man, write this down. Now, there is another figure, as you know, from Daniel 7. Now, what's the remarkable thing about this Son of Man who appears in Daniel 7 is, now it's a vision, I know. He appears in a place where no other person in the Bible ever appears without falling face down. He walks right into the throne room, right into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and is absolutely at home there. Not only is he at home there, God, the Ancient of Days, delivers over to him what? All the kingdoms of the earth, and he has total dominion on it forever, over them forever. A dominion that will never fade or pass away. If you go back to Daniel 4, it is 100% exactly how God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, how his dominion is described as one that never fades, right? It is forever. It is an everlasting dominion. It's his forever. Only his. And in Daniel chapter 7, he hands it over. Right? I'm, immediately I'm reflecting on, I am God, there is no other. My glory I will not share with another. And he hands it over to him. And by the way, <laughs> you don't need me to tell you this. People knew this text. Right? They're expecting something. Now, Jesus does the unexpected. Jesus takes these two figures and combines them into one, himself. He is the royal son of man who has dominion over all kingdoms in the way that only Yahweh can have it. He rules and reigns like Yahweh. And he is the suffering servant. The Son of Man, right, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus, this is a, I mean, this is a combination, it's, a, it's all kinds of stuff, right? We don't, just, we don't just call things one thing. And this is what nobody's expecting. Now, don't let people sort of, you know, I mean, you wouldn't, but Sometimes people will be like, well, you know, this is all, well, you know, Jesus explains what this means when he talks about things like coming in the clouds, because clouds are not just like heavenly transport. What are clouds? It's the presence of God, right? When the tabernacle or the temple is filled with the presence of God, what is it? It comes in, God comes in what? 
cloud. When God goes before Israelite, the Israelites in the day, what's it? It's in a cloud. Right? And by the way, coming with the angels, if that's not enough, but coming in glory in the cloud, that's how God comes. So, you know, be careful when you hear people like making this so vague. They're like, well, I don't have no idea. When you add to this angels, clouds, coming, descending, things like that, you're letting the cat out of the bag to a certain degree. Right? So, again, but still, though, this guy from Nazareth? I mean, we know who his parents are, you know. We know his brothers and sisters. I mean, this, seriously, this guy? This guy who, like, heals, does crazy stuff like heals people in the Sabbath. He's got no background, right? He doesn't even come from the right town. He's from Nazareth, right? He's not even from Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. Of course, he is from Bethlehem, right? All these things. And so, again, I'm not trying to say that all the things I was talking about from earlier in the Old Testament, like that's all like typological pointers. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm, you know, some of it's uh, typological. Some of it's, by the way, typological, typological, if you're not sure, just 50-50 it, and you're almost 50% right most of the time. Right? Just trust me on that. I do it all the time. Right? And so, um, I'm not saying it's all. I'm just saying Again, this is what we see in the Bible, right? And I've already talked about this before, right? I mean, we've talked about this already. Now, he talks about expectations for what it means to follow him, right? So, what we should expect, again, a reversal of what we would expect to expect. And that is, you do what? You give up the rights to the thing that means more to you than anything in the world, and that is your own life. Which means you can follow Jesus without having to be a martyr. And you can follow Jesus as much as anyone, as long as the thing is, you know, you don't, in other words, your physical position and what happens to you physically, that's not what determines a disciple of Jesus, right? But it is what? It is giving up the rights to the thing that you love more than anything else, the thing that you want to lose less than anything else, and that is your own life. The thing that you do every single day, to pre- even if you are treating everybody else horribly, the thing that you will do, even if it looks weird, is you will try to give yourself your best life today, even if you make all kinds of wrong decisions in the moment that end up having long-term or even short-term bad effects. Generally speaking, on a daily basis, I look after this guy. Right? I mean, if I need to sleep on, if I need to forgive myself, and, you know, give myself, whatever. And Jesus is like, this is what it's going to cost you. Yeah, you know, and, but, this, but if you think about it, you start to put in this thing, you're like, no, you know, this is what it is. Now, I want to say this. Sometimes we talk about what the gospel does is it turns everything on its head. And it, it does, and I, I'm, I'm a fan of saying that. But sometimes we need to say, you know what it's actually doing? It's actually write, writing things. It's not just taking the world and like turning it upside down. It's sure, 
because there's more than one way to describe stuff. It's actually putting things to rights. It is making us who we're meant to be, who God intends us to be, made in his image. It's God making justice the way it's meant to be, and that is flowing from him and for us on the basis of faith alone. It is God putting the worlds to right in his own time according to his own judgment. It is trusting that God is doing that even when there is maybe any given day on every news feed you have and every podcast you listen to and whatever else, very little evidence that that's happening. It is believing that that is happening. And not only that, God's going to turn this world upside down. He's going to write it. So it turns out that these reversals are just reversals of what we would, it's the reversals of the way we would do it. It's the reversals of the way we would plan it or write it or conceive it. But for God, it's not a reversal at all. Right? It's what reversals look like in a fallen world. That's why the reason we talk about is the reason I talk about his reversal is because it's taking place in a fallen world. It is God setting things to right, not just turning things upside down. Right? So that's one of the things. I'm not saying that you would do this or you have to do this or I expect you to do this, but that's one of the things I've learned is I need to be like triply, if that is that a word? I don't know. It's a place. Careful that I don't make it sound like these reversals of God, like, I'm going to give this a shot. This doesn't work. So now I'm going to try this. Now I'm going to try this. Now I'm going to try this. I'm going to just keep reversing stuff enough until it finally works out with Jesus. Right? Of course, that's not what it means. Okay? Um, yeah, we've talked about that already. <laughs> so, as we start to wrap it up, were you? Yeah. So this is how Paul basically, at the most basic sort of way, describes the gospel message as, no, you know what, it's nobody takes it as, of course. Let's take a look. I don't really have anything. This, this slide, is that's the whole complete slide, by the way. No, it isn't. I shouldn't have said that. Now, of course, Paul is not against making good arguments. Paul is not against sort of discussing, uh, uh, discussing things with people, where they are, where they are. You know, he's not against any of that. He doesn't reject all sort of forms of like what we would maybe call apologetics. Uh, you just look at him in Athens, right? In Athens, he, yeah, I'm not going to tell you. At the end of the day, though, what happens? Like, so people who are like, like when we think about apologetics, at the end of the day, right, Paul's like toe-to-toe, and we, we love Paul and Mars Hill, but at the end of the day, what's the verdict from most people at Mars Hill? This guy is crazy. Why is he crazy? Resurrection. There is no way to ever get around that. Right? Now, again, I'm not knocking apologetics. I'm really, really not. I'm just saying at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there is no getting around the idea that you're going to look somebody in the eyes and tell them that Jesus rose from the dead. Actual dead. 
and rose again and ascended into heaven. And you're going to have to do it and say it. And this is what Paul's talking about here, right? For the word of the cross, verse 18, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. I know, you know, sorry to interrupt, but I'm always taken by the Jews coming to Jesus like, show us the sign and we'll believe. Right when he's just done what? Giving them a sign. But you know who would have been front of the line? Hey, show me something I'll believe. This guy. Right? So. Stumbling like the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You are, uh, sorry, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's, that's really the sort of thing that ties it up at the end of the day, right? So if, you, if, you, if we just sort of recap, right? It's the foolishness of an old man and his barren wife, right? It's the foolishness of a story of a sinful, hypocritical third son of Jacob, who never really becomes like a saint, by the way. You know, the foolishness of a nation in rebellion without a king. Sometimes saying, hey, and now, we do want to remember that in, <clears throat> we don't want to paint a picture in this sort of arc of sort of, if you, biblical sort of theological arc. We don't want to paint a picture where you never hear people doing things like in Judges, crying out to God. In other words, we don't want to make it like it's just sort of robotic. God kind of sort of starts it, puts it into place. People do whatever they want. God steamrolls right through, right? You still see, you still see God doing things like using like the divinely appointed means of things like prayer to bring about his will, right? Because those are when you hear, like, it is, that's a divinely appointed means for God to bring about his own will. And, you, and you, we, we don't want to dispense with that. And, you know, that goes back to this sort of big picture thing I did. One of the things we can make it, we can sort of make it as, it's just God doing his thing apart from, basically, humanity at all. 
just doing it, right? But that's just something to be careful about. Because even in Judges, you do hear them calling out to God. Now, the next day, they might call out to Baal. But, you know, and again, I'm not excusing it, but more than one person, I think we all know at least more than one person, who is pretty faithful one day and maybe the next not so much. It's happened. It's the foolishness of a boy with a sling. I've added some things here too. It's the foolishness of exile, the destruction of a nation. And then, you know, it's the foolishness of things like a cattle stall. And then ultimately it's the foolishness of the cross, right? Where we're telling people, you know how you can be, first of all, explain them what it means to be saved. But you know where salvation comes from? A Jewish worker's son who died on a Roman execution stake. That's, that's life. And that's eternal life. Right? So, I just want to end. I don't even know what time officially we're supposed to end. I'm going to assume. Oh, shockingly doing okay on time. I just want to end with how, I mean, you guys are involved in, uh, um, in teaching and preaching and discipling. These are not just sort of concepts, right, that are just kind of floating out there. Like, we, again, right, we do want to be careful, right, and like I've said before, and we want to be able to apply those things. And I think one of the best ways to, what, before I go any further, one of the best ways to apply everything that I'm talking about today is apply it like a mirror. And that is, you don't just see yourself as the kid with the sling, you see yourself like buried back in the ranks of the army, like, no, I'm not going. Right? Or you see yourself thinking, I was this close to saying something. I'm glad Peter did and I didn't. You know? But it turns out this pattern, this pattern holds true. And it holds true for ministry. So we'll just take a couple of things, and you know, I'm not trying to be too just sort of um, broad brush here, but let's just take a couple examples of what, let's just call it the reversal of success maybe, or what success might look like in ministry. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less than one. Less one, sorry. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I'm trying to figure out how many shipwrecks it would take me to rethink my life decisions. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail, fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. 
the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped his hands. So that's sort of Paul talking about, I don't know. I mean, it is a unexpected kind of resume. And then even to the very end, Oh, that should obviously be 2 Timothy, by the way, if that's throwing you off. So here's Paul at the end of his life, not without hope, but at all. But still. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So the, 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 one of the points I want to make, though, about this is, you see, Paul believes this, and you can hear it, but it's not because he's surrounded with all kinds of evidence. He'll be like, mm, yes, these are the signs of success. Dying in a Rome, dying in, dying, dying under arrest in Rome with no future prospects of getting out. Well done. Right? And having lived the life he's lived. Again, see what I mean is this is what faith, and another way, and I just resisted this because I, I don't want to just always talk about the same thing as I wanted to bring it up at the end. If you think about what this sort of like reversal theme is. It is the difference between living by faith and living by sight. It's by faith that we see these things, not as like, again, not God sort of turning the world upside down, which he does. It is God putting it to rights. But we have, it's only by faith in God that we can see it this way. Because understanding, understanding all these reversals doesn't mean, like, think about it. If we just like, yeah, that's how God does things. But then if we walk out our door the next day, or walk Sunday into the pulpit, or into the room, or next week when you're discipling, if we put these things behind and decide to start judging success and what's right and whether anything, on the basis of what we see, then none of this will have like affected us. So it's like we walked, looked in the mirror and walked away. Because Paul here, he's not, again, he's not convinced. He's not convinced that this is true because he's like, basically going to be what's happening now, just better. It's by faith that he knows that this is happening. And then, listen to what, listen, do your best to come to me soon. That's a really unfortunate heading. If you have the heading personal instructions, like a lot of the headings really are, but they're, you know, they have their place. And this is tragic. For demons, Demas, remember the last time we heard about Demas, he was commended. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to uh, Dalmatia. That doesn't mean, by the way, that either of those two guys are like Demas. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, which is always really moving to me. 
You know, because after the big bus stop over Mark, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he, is strongly, he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? So, I mean, you know, in the Apostle Paul, I think in in the Apostle Paul, what we see is someone who has come fully to grasp what it means to live by faith. Right? Not based on, like, the judgment of what we think is how things should work, right, or when things will work, or if we just do A, then B will certainly follow, right? Sometimes that happens. But, but I think there you see it, right? So the Christ, Christian ministry, the thing that we're called to is of maybe, all, I mean, again, I, I'm not trying to, like, put people in ministry, like, on some sort of pedestal, but it is a particular calling where, 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 you, are, where you are called in particular ways, right, to bear this sort of life of faith where you can't fall into sort of measuring success on the same basis of like, on the same basis that success is measured in every, almost every other arena, right? Now, that's not to say, like I can remember one guy in particular who said, I measure success by empty pews. I'm like, <laughs> well, brother, you know, in certain contexts, I understand exactly what that means. In yours, however, it should be causing you to think otherwise, which was actually true. Um, but you know what I mean. I mean, but still, we can't judge success by full pews. Praise God if the pews are full, Right? And of course, if they're not, we, it's not like there's only one solution. That is, I'm not the problem. They are. Well, nobody thinks that. But at the same time, you can't judge the success of your ministry, the, 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 the usefulness of your ministry, the impact of your ministry. You can not really never judge it in the moment. Maybe even in your lifetime. And you can never judge it on the basis of how well another person's ministry is doing. Right? Across town or across the state, this guy's flourishing, but we're struggling, right? And we just always seem to struggle, and he always seems to flourish. Now, I'm not saying there's a, you know, I'm not giving you like the magic key to all these things. I'm just saying we have to remember, though, that we are called in our ministry. We are called in our ministry to constantly walk this path of like these reversals of what we would expect so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, it is by might 
It is by overwhelming gifts. It is by sort of overwhelming um, opportunities or resources or any of those things that God does His work and is doing His work even through people like us. All right, so I hope it's been helpful. We have a little bit of time. I hope it's been helpful just to sort of walk through this. And again, it's not really, really technical. Uh, it's just something, to be honest with you, that it's, it's really something that over the years of sort of teaching uh, hermeneutics and teaching New Testament, teaching Bible, it's just this theme I've seen over and over and over again. And it's not the only one. Um, and, and, you know, and it's not one of these things where every, every time you bring this up, you have to, like, give people, like, ten other Bible examples, right, where you're teaching, like, the whole Bible in every sermon or something like that. But it just gives us an opportunity, I think, to sort of compare the way we look at things with the way God does things. Um, and again, so I hope it's been helpful just to sort of walk through it. I know it's been a little bit of like a fire hydrant type of thing at times, uh, but I appreciate you being here. And if, you, if there's anything you want to bring up, anything you want to talk about, um, doesn't even necessarily have to do with what, we're, what we've been discussing. I'm happy to do that. There's usually a time where there's like this weird stuff.